I had been delving into the arcane earlier today because I had listened to a last pod episode on Nazis and the occult. And strangely enough, Michael, I want to inform you that there is a uh, a long forgotten tome in the esoterica of Madame Blavatsky's writings that we have unearthed to discover. And Michael knows of Madame Blavatsky from all of his discussions about Lemuria and the Lemurians and all of their nonsense. But apparently there is another unaccounted for race that was discovered. Can you believe this? Oh, man. The eighth race. Yes. Oh, jeez. Uh, let uh, me hear it's, it. It's the, the, the Dildoradians. <laughs> Dildorado has actually been found. They found some of, you know, just, just scattered, you know, pieces of pots and uh, some arrows. But uh, it has been found. So the fabled Dildorado was discovered only last week. So we've managed to unearth it at, at the appropriate time, I find. I think I saw pictures of those arrows because they were, like, really rounded at the end instead of it being uh-huh. pointed. Uh-huh, strange, yeah. yes, yeah. and very long. You, you imagine a lot of shaft had to be present to propel the tip of those things forward. Yeah, I don't know how those things would have flown either because, like, the feathers mm-hmm. were, like, more, like, rounded. They almost Unless like they had, you know, weird. wings, kind of like dragon wings on them, perhaps. Okay, okay, I can see. Okay. Or, or, or maybe something motorized behind to propel them forward. Oh, okay. That's true. Because, I mean, like, the Lemurians and other, you know, races were really civilized. Or really, they weren't just, like, you know, ancient hunter-gatherers or anything like that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it could be motorized. You know, like, I think they ate quite a bit of popcorn as well. Uh, detective popcorn, indeed. Uh, no, the Dildoradians, I find, they're, you know, very sleek. Uh, tend to be a little slippery, very top-heavy as a race, from mm. from what I was told. But a plethora of colors and uh, sizes you could find, but okay. all very slender, unless you got them from a you know different company. <laughs> <laughs> and before that joke actually has a chance to hit the spot, we're gonna get ourselves out of here because, of course, this ain't a scene. It's a goddamn execution uh how about no this ain't a scene it's an amputation even better the arms race lost but (laughs) by the eternal behold Behold. it's the disinformed podcast i'm shane and i'm michael i'm michael you're getting not better We are ready to believe you, but uh, we are excited to delve back in here because we had just gotten everybody stimulated, titillated, and ready for insertion with last week's discussion of the Cherry Poppin' Dadais and uh, all of their glorious musical exploits, if you will. And so I think we're, we're very prepared for part two. But for any of you listeners out there who have no idea who we are or what we are doing, uh, we like to delve into random esoterica here on this show. And then in the course of explaining it to one another and you, the listeners, we lie about it just a little bit. That is the shtick of the show. It's occasionally funny, often perplexing, and occasionally nauseating, just depending upon the circumstances. But we do not leave disinformed... Nor will you. We have a denouement at the end of the episode. We let you know what we lied about and why, so that you can keep score in your pleasant little book at home. But, uh, so as I said, we were talking about the Cherry Pop and Daddies last week. If you have not listened to that episode, 
may be wise to do so before you get into this one, because, you know, who knows what's going to unfold before us. It is a rollicking good time, I assure you. <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> yes. So, as you said, last week we covered the, uh, well, as I phrased it then, the cherry pop <laughs> babies. <laughs> nope. Uh, yes. So, their, uh, their formation. I mean, anything that can be exchanged <laughs> with placenta as a metaphor, I think I want to just leave alone. <laughs> mm. Whatever. I went there again. So... Yeah, so we uh, we discussed their early years and their formation, and then uh, leading up with their first three albums. And in part two, we will discuss their mainstream success and rapid decline. Oh, <laughs> shots fired! <laughs> yeah, uh, but don't worry. Like the phoenix, they will rise gloriously from the ashes, and that will be part three. <laughs> so they discover Blue Chew, and the Dildorado rides again. That's right, off into the sunset. yippee ki And the cherries popped all over again. That's right. Cherries popping all the popcorn just like a shot out of the Dildorado. Ooh, so is it, have they found individuals who believe you can be a born-again virgin? Is that the concept here? Um, well, I mean, can't <laughs> you be a born-again virgin? I mean, depends on how much you drank. Well, I mean, technically, if the body, like, sheds all of its cells and whatnot, like, if you're a new person every seven years, then if you go without. <laughs> I don't know what reptilian elite you're involved with, but. Uh, Wasn't well, that the case? Yeah. Isn't it like every seven years, no, no part of you're, you remains that was part, that was physically like, a part of you from seven you're years You're the doctor. I just play one on television. <laughs> yeah, I, I do I do recall hearing something about that. I don't know if it's just pop science or what, but yeah, because like your cells are dying and regrowing and dividing and all that other stuff. So Yeah, so I think legit. if you Yeah, I think if you go without for a a little seven year itch, if you will, I think maybe you could say, you know, you're born again virgin, ready to have your cherry popped all over. You're so tight. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's been, been seven, seven years. years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. That's why I had to take the cheesecloth off of you before we got down to the leaven here. <laughs> yeah. So seven well, years yeah. ago, I filed for bankruptcy, and now I'm ready to be filled. <laughs> got to hack off all the wax that had been covering your slot before I could get the insertion prepped. But uh, <laughs> all right. So In thank you. This evening. <laughs> Uh, we have five lies. I'm noticing a theme. Well, yes, but I mean, you know, one of them last time was a number lie, just as a, a little homage to the past. So in reality, there were four real lies. Uh, and that lie was found out within the first 20 seconds of the episode. So it didn't really yes. count. So tonight, though, five lies. So Well, I don't really count either, so we'll never know what happened. <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, where we left off, the Cherub Hop and Daddies had just come out with their third album, Kids on the Street, and were uh, touring That's what off. happened to the babies. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. You go around, you pop cherries, got all these little babies, you just leave the kids on the street and call it a day. Just like fundamentalist Mormon males just kicked out of the commune and left to fend for themselves. Exactly. So that album uh, saw their... They're kind of the biggest success at the time, but uh, still hardly, you know, mainstream success. So the, now we're moving in. We're circa 1997. So when we last left the Cherry Pop and Daddies in 96, 
uh, they had just released their third album that I was referencing, had achieved moderate success, even appearing on the Rolling Stones alternative charts. By late 1996, ska had broken into the American mainstream as one of the most popular forms of alternative music, catapulting such major label bands as Real Big Fish and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones into the national spotlight. I considered it breaking and entering personally, but <laughs> I've actually been listening to a lot of uh, like Mighty Mighty Boss Tones because nowadays they make children's music and Cordelia loves it. Yeah, true story. Uh, well, that's what happens when you knock on wood, I suppose. But uh, uh, I, I mean, the last time I had heard anything from them, they had made a whole album about George Floyd, like about three years ago. That doesn't strike really? me as children's music. <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, yeah, um, wow. yeah. I I knew I, I heard other people talking about that, uh, and they said it was not worth the listen. Interesting. Um, I had not heard that album. <laughs> Uh, I'm kind of keen to go check it out now. Um, well, please do and report back because <laughs> <clears throat> who told you it wasn't worth listening to? Cause that like, uh, well, it doesn't really speak well to their character. Yeah, did I they suppose. say that like, as they were well, no, as putting in, up like, their Confederate flag sun visor and their big Ford F-150? No, as in like they were reading, they, it was on a podcast that I was listening to and they okay. read the lyrics from it and it sounded very cringy all right so what behind the bastards episode with this song then uh actually what's behind the bastards i i I know you way too well you don't listen to anything else you don't even listen to this show it's painfully evident but uh all right i'm sorry just as a quick aside and you're talking about other podcasts briefly but behind the bastards i got into for a little while uh don't listen to it uh, nearly as much now it subsequently spun me off onto the dollop when those guys showed up on a behind the bastards episode got into the dollop for a while then they referenced last podcast on the left which (laughs) uh got me to leave the dollop go to the last podcast on left and that's where i've been at for like ages now because there's like 600 bloody episodes or whatever yes so you're a little loose as far as your podcast Uh, my cherry's been popped many many moons ago all right i don't (laughs) feel special any longer oh well it was y'all that got it and I, I, yeah, that's right. That's why I dug deep and just buried myself in your back catalog. <laughs> I feel like Those I need a wipe. again. <laughs> Check, please. Goodness. Yes. All right. So, yes, the uh, Real Big Fish, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, etc. had broken into American mainstream. The Cherry Pop and Daddies, however, without the support of a record label, were ultimately left on the fringes of commercial visibility. Although Kids on the Street had sold well for an independent release, the band had continuing difficulty securing press and distribution outside of the Northwest, while the pressure of full-time touring was inevitably becoming both a personal and financial strain on the members. Feeling that they had hit a glass ceiling as an independent band, Steve Perry said the daddies were left with one of two options at this time, either sign to a label or break up. Or dispose of the dildozer. Well, it was around that time that the dildozer was retired. Remember, Circle yes, 96, yeah. I was like, yeah. If you're if you don't often get a lot of fame and notoriety for the right reasons, if you're just being incendiary like that, but Although it I, might distract from their other, you know, more poignant messaging, as we've talked about. Besides just talking about tits, though, I do think in 2023 they probably would have had a lot more success or luck with that sort of like you know 
witty staged theatrics and you know mm-hmm. riding around on the dildozer and stuff i feel like counterculture yeah yeah I feel it's a little, like, little more acceptable yeah i think it would have probably you know uh swung a little more here yeah, you know, it's a little different than the uh, the Bush, ad- or actually, technically, the Clinton administration, so. Mm-hmm. All right, so, despite primarily playing ska tours during this turbulent period of their career, the Daddies suddenly began attracting a sizable and enthusiastic audience for their swing music, owing heavily to the coincident public interest in the formerly underground swing revival movement, due in part to the, sus- to the success of the 1996 film Swingers. So, although the Daddies had occasionally played shows with notable swing revival bands like Royal Crown Review, they were not largely associated with the scene or the subculture. Remember, I talked about last episode that even though they were playing swing songs, you know, Steve Perry would, you know, perform in a diaper and or like uh, just wearing jeans with a chain around it and be shirtless. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like a punk rock show. And so, since he was a punk rock aficionado, that's kind of what you style yourself after. <clears throat> exactly. So it, you, you know, wasn't, uh, you know, like, you know, Royal Crown Review or some of these other bands that were showing up in zoot suits and very much like styling themselves after the forties and really trying to put themselves into that little niche market. I can't think of, uh, like, bands outside of, like, the only one that springs to mind, and I'm going to be harangued, I'm sure, by other music lovers, but, like, the Stray Cats are, like, the one band I could think of that had any real notoriety functioning out in the mainstream music scene past, like, the 50s to 60s, but... Yeah, I would say that's probably about right. You know, in terms of that, until this, like, revival kind of blew up a... Right. Yeah. So... Uh, when fans regularly began approaching the band's merchandise table, asking which of their albums contained the most swing songs, the Daddies realized they lacked an album fully representing their swing side, prompting the band's manager at the time to convince them to compile all of their swing songs onto one CD until they could afford to make a new album, using their available finances to record a few bonus tracks for its inclusion as well. And that was Huey Lewis and the News is Four, I believe, is what that album was. Yeah. <clears throat> Great album. Great album. Good year. Good year. All the swings. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> there were 17 under par by the time they were done with the album, as I recall. So essentially it was, you know, it was kind of a win-win, right? Because you have everybody coming up to their table. Hey, which of your albums has the most swing? Well, why don't we just make, you know, put all of our stuff together on one album? It would save us a bunch of money because we don't really have to do much other than record a couple new songs. Right. Uh, and then we can just pop it out and we're answering an ask that's, you know, happening all the time here. So, you know, kind of a, an easy win-win there. So what you're saying is that it don't mean a thing if it ain't, if got, it that ain't swing. got that swing. That's right. So singer-songwriter Steve Perry explained how the concept of a compilation came to be in an interview for the Daily of the University of Washington, saying, we didn't want to be a quote-unquote swing band. What happened was that our manager said, everybody comes up and they ask me which CD has the most swing on it. That's what we mostly played live. And I don't know what the fuck to tell them because two of the CDs have the same amount and the other has less. So it's between these and I don't know what to do. I swear to God, if you put all of those swing songs on one record, people would just shit. They would really want that (laughs) because how many people have all three Cherry Poppin' Daddy's records? And Steve Perry said, well, none. And the manager said, well, yeah, there you go. And I went, I don't think that a band from Eugene with three records could put a greatest hits record out. 
And then the manager said, well, then record some new songs. And we talked about it for a while and we decided to do it. And it was cheap. So we did it. See, this just strikes me as like a really narrow-minded and poor manager. If he says, listen, I'm incapable of just bullshitting the listening audience and just throwing it out. Oh, well, this one has, you know, they all have a lot of swing songs on them. I specifically prided myself in there was an evening in Tower Records where I became mythic, if I may self-aggrandize for a moment, (laughs) uh, because I had uh, two middle-aged women that came in and asked up at the front counter which would be the best Dave Matthews band album to buy. And the general manager at the store turned and is like, hey, Shane, you want to go over and talk to this lady? So I took these two women out into the thing and started with the pitch of like, well, it depends. Like, are you going to have an evening at home where you just, you know, ripping a joint and laying back on the couch and relaxing? Do you want to get up and move around? Like, do you want to dance? Do you want to have a good time? Do you want something you can throw on and have like some lo-fi vibes in the back of a coffee shop? Like, what are you angling for? What's the mood you're looking to establish? Because there's a different day for everybody. And every album has a little something different for you. And that person left with 13 CDs by the time I got through with the evening, including live material, other things. And uh, I was given a pretty significant little goose of commission for the evening. And uh, from that point forward, I was told I was the bullshitter of the group, which I I just liked Dave Matthews. It was easier (laughs) for me to sell that than it was to be like, oh, yes, let's talk about Frank Zappa. If you want to get beyond baby, take your teeth out. I don't know what else I can do. But yeah, this manager just needed to get a little more inventive to Mm -hmm. me is what it sounds like. You're telling me that you didn't turn to these people and say, if you get these particular, these three albums, people will just shit. No, that was not the first (laughs) thing out of my mouth. (laughs) It's not really what you wanted a live show either. It's what happens when you pull the Dildorado out, from Uh, my understanding. You'll just shit. You don't even need three albums. You'll just shit. She frosted me like a fucking cake. <laughs> uh, is oh. the saying they'll just shit uh, bullshit, by the way? It is just... not. Okay, oh, all right. <laughs> just figured I'd... it was too on the nose for me to not say something. <laughs> no, it, it is not a lie. All right, so the result of this compilation record is Zoot Suit Riot, the swinging hits of the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. And it became an unexpectedly popular item as the band went on tour reportedly selling as many as 4,000 copies a week throughout their Northwest distributors. So was that tune on a previous released album, or was that one of the ones they recorded? It was one of the ones they recorded. Really? Yeah, and uh, actually, um, if you listen to the song, I don't think I actually mentioned this. Maybe I did. So if I repeat it in a little bit, I'll try to skip it. But um, if you listen to that song, at the very end of the record just before it cuts out you hear steve say i think i'm about ready to sing it because what they had done is they recorded it in the one take and just like when they were practicing it and then they just went ahead and recorded it and the the actual record uh itself was not meant to be the actual recorded song and so at the tail end he's literally just telling them okay i think i'm about ready to sing it yeah and then it was Uh, like no we'll go with it no, yeah, engineers do that shit all the time. There, uh, you routinely have something where you're practicing, and they'll just record it just to see what happens. And you'll get in after it's like, yeah, no, you don't need to do it again. I, I recorded that one. So you're like, oh, okay, fine, <laughs> we'll just keep it. Yeah, so it worked out uh, very well, and it's just kind of funny that it, you know, it hangs out there in the, the little bit there. So, it's apocryphal. Mm-hmm. So this is a compilation album, Zoot Suit Riot, the swinging hits of the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. 
by the American band, the Cherry Poppin' Daddies, of course, and it was released on March 18th, 1997 by Space Age Bachelor Pad Records. The album is a collection of swing and jazz-influenced songs from the band's first three studio albums, along with four bonus tracks recorded especially for this compilation. Recording for the album's bonus tracks took place in late 1996, and according to accounts by Perry, was hurried and carried out on a tight budget as the band, quote-unquote, didn't have much bread to record. In several instances, only single takes were used. Ah, and then I do write it here. At the end of the, ba- the album's titular song, Perry is heard saying, I think I'm about ready to sing it now, which he was signifying to the engineer after doing his first run-through of the song. The engineer instead told him it was a decent take and suggested keeping his comment in the final mix as an inside joke, to which Perry ultimately agreed, saying, unbeknownst to us, it became a big hit record. It, it, for context as well, like this is at the era where like Bush was the the band du jour, and you know we were just sort of coalescing into the grunge era. So this record was a complete contrast to anything else that you would hear on the radio, which was really pleasant uh, and in a nice little sousson of something different than what you had just had tamped down your throat for the preceding you know four or five years. Exactly. Yeah. It was. It was very much a. Uh, change to what had come, but it was also such a quick little flash in the pan. And then, you know, popular music just shifted on and moved on and left everybody behind. As all too often happens. Mm -hmm. So following negotiations by, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh, While stopped in Los Angeles during another tour together, Real Big Fish arranged a meeting between their label, Mojo Records, and the Cherry Poppin' Daddies in the hopes of helping the band obtain a distribution deal for Zoot Suit Riot. Because keep in mind, at this time, they were still just doing their little local scene thing, and this was a record that they had just released independently, like their first three, and it was really just trying to get people to, you know, shut up about which album to buy, and here, grab this one to try to make some money, right? So... This wasn't meant to be some major hit. So following negotiations between Perry and Mojo, however, the label instead signed the daddies to a two-album recording contract. Zoot Suit Riot was licensed and reissued by Mojo and given national distribution in July 1997, less than four months after its original release. By October 1997, the rising mainstream popularity of swing music had resulted in consistently steady sales of Zoot Suit Riot motivating Mojo to release the album's title track as a single and distribute it among modern rock radio stations. Do we feel like Jim Carrey's turn in the mask was what was responsible for, you know, causing all of this swing to to really jump back into the American consciousness? Well, I would say that that's that and swingers. But um, I referenced earlier uh, the Royal Crown Review. Well, I referenced swingers, but I referenced Royal Crown Review, who actually appears in the mask. And uh, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that do the Hey Pachuco song. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So I, I find it interesting. just the the things that swing. I, I actually have never seen Swingers. So oh, fight they're... me, John Favreau. Find me. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> Shots fired. So the Daddies, who were in preparation uh, over recording a new studio album, ardently protested Mojo's decision under the belief that a swing song would never receive airplay on mainstream radio and the band would likely have to recoup the cost of its marketing. Nevertheless, Mojo persisted, and to the band's surprise, Zoot Suit Riot soon found regular rotation on both college radio and major stations such as Los Angeles' influential K-Rock FM. 
I feel like I want to get the t-shirt that says, nevertheless, Mojo persisted. (laughs) (laughs) This is a marketing opportunity there somewhere. I like it. So by mid-1998, the Daddies had emerged as one of the most successful bands of the swing revival. After climbing to number one on Billboard's top heat seekers, Zoot Suit Riot became the first album of the swing revival to crack the top 40 of the Billboard 200, peaking at number 17 and spending an ultimate total of 53 weeks on the chart. In June 1998, the album had sold 500,000 copies in the United States, going on to surpass sales of 1.4 million by August. Wow. Yeah. The album's lead single, Zoot Suit Riot, became a moderate radio hit, reaching number 41 on the Hot 100 and appearing on numerous compilation albums, notably the very first U.S. installment of Now, That's What I Call Music. No. Really? Yeah, the very first one, yep. Huh. Now they're on like 700,000 or something like that. And they have children doing them. That's right, but... No, 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 no. that's a different one. That's the kids' bop. Oh, yes. Kids but bop. still, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they've released, you know, a million of those now. That's what I call music. But the daddies were there to pop the very first cherry. Uh, Sorry, I'm thinking I'm thinking of that one with the, the, the speakers and the, the, the bumps and stuff and how they would. The, the song that he read from last week. Oh, yeah. You know, with the, the uh, about speakers. the titties? Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes, yeah. And I was like, I wonder how they would try and put that on Kids Bop. Uh, well, I mean, Kids Bop <laughs> did just do uh, one of your favorite artists. Yeah, the Montero. Uh, so, I yeah. mean, <laughs> if you can fucking try to make that clean and puerile, like... Well, uh, and the song that you're referencing there, Mike, uh, does say, you know, Holy Toledo Twin Torpedoes, my Cub Scout pitched a tent in my Speedos. Well, it's talking about Cub Scouts right there and pitching tents. I mean, that's... Yeah, if that's not an anthem for the Boy Scouts of America, I don't know what is. There's also you're not uh, wrong. <laughs> gonna hold off on the joke because it's it's been far too overdone. That's terrible, but yes, there's several uh, you know albums from the King of Pop maybe that that might also be homage to the Boy Scouts in an entirely different perspective. I said I wasn't gonna make the joke, and then I did it. And then okay, you're like, fine. let me explain the joke fine. I wasn't gonna make. It's funny that um, you referenced the King of Pop because. Uh, the Cherry Pop and Daddies don't usually reference like within song lyrics. Uh, well, any of they are the kings of pop. Well, it, yes, pop and mm-hmm. uh, but they don't usually reference anybody. But they actually do reference Michael Jackson in one song because they have a song uh, called "You Got to Move," and it's essentially a tale of like when he was young, Steve Perry, like the or the protagonist of the song, I suppose, uh, would mm-hmm. you know get his ass kicked, and so it's really like you know. Uh, about using your feet, you know, you got to move like, you know, screw the assholes, just run. Right. And, uh, and the, it, in there, he references Michael Jackson. Cause he says like, like Michael Jackson said, you got to beat it. And then, so, or I'm bad. You know it. Shawona. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about the, you said the billboard fire starters or something like uh, that. Heat seekers. Heat. See- oh, I, I, I was close. Twin I've, torpedoes. Uh, yeah, heat seekers, yes. Never <laughs> they sense heat. Um I've never heard of that before. Like what 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 like I know the top fifty and all that other stuff, but what was that? So it's stuff that is essentially kind of laid siege to to the radio, uh, you know, like new okay. oncoming like hot singles. Okay. For exactly. lack of a better in, term. In our area? Okay. okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> Got it. Um, <laughs> Asian girls want to date you now. In my Just area? Here. Of all the places? Oh, man. How how lucky am I? I've never uh, seen an Asian girl in Moscow. Strange. <laughs> um, so, Moscow, Idaho, mind you. Ooh. I don't know why it's southern. Moscow, Idaho. Moscow, um, Idaho, you know. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> then, was it true that they were first in that, like... That billboard type? Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. It just, I've never heard of fire seekers the or heat whatever. Seekers? I don't, I'm just st- going to call it wrong every time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the, if it's the fire a, starters. The torpedo homers, homing, homing, homing <laughs> torpedoes, I, I, whatever. Oh, damn the okay. torpedoes. <laughs> damn the torpedoes. <laughs> oh, damn the weather. Um, Let's do. <laughs> rip. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Fuck. is that <laughs> uh, sorry? Uh, the like the views of, of Michael like... <laughs> have, have not reflected the views of, of myself or the disinformed podcast. I, I, I mean, the torpedoes, like, you gotta let the torpedoes rip. Like, like, uh, uh-huh. like yeah. yeah, anyway, let's move try on. to get me shot. <laughs> oh. All right, moving on from that. Um, so. With regards to uh, Zoot Suit Riot, the original music video for the song was low budget and featured a cameo by Barry Ward, a.k.a. Ballsack, the Jaws of Death from Guar. However, when the song began, <laughs> began to gain popularity, a second video was commissioned. You know Guar, right? Ballsack. I do know yeah, Guar. So- I don't imagine that they're ma- you know anybody's making a cameo in the video here. Oh, so you're calling bullshit on... I am most certainly calling bullshit on that. Well, then, my friend, you are incorrect. Barry Ward, a.k.a. Ballsack, the Jaws of Death from Guar, appears in the original music video. How do those fuckers run in the same circle? Because I don't imagine they spend a lot of time in similar speakeasies. Well, I mean, like, you know, a formation of, like, you know, punk rock, rock and roll. Keep in mind, their very first album was also a reference to Motorhead's song, right? Ferocious Yeah, that's great. But, I mean, like, you know, I've done shows opening for punk bands. I don't fucking hang out with Andrew W.K. on the weekends. Like, it's it's slightly disparate. No bullshit. <laughs> I, I'll in be the... incredulous. That's, but, yeah, okay. That's is, great. Is that really his nickname? Ballsack. Uh huh. Yes. You're not familiar with Guar. They are very visceral. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like, I understand Ballsack and I understand the Jaws of Life. They, Ballsack, they sh- the Jaws of Life. Oh. They okay. have giant, like, water guns full of what is intended to be semen that they spray out on the audience and so, blood and all Listen to what you just things, said so. there. And then think of the Dildorado shooting out uh-huh. stuff. So you're I telling me, how, yeah, yeah, you're telling me that no, the two I, of them don't have common ground. I'm just saying, stylistically speaking, the music would not imply that these are our kindred spirits. But yes, in that context, it, it's rabble rousers, yeah. uh, you know, anti-society boys. Then yes, I get it. But no, he's My- he's there in the first video, the uh, the low budget one. Mm-hmm. My head cannon is that he Their agreed to. Mm. That he agreed to be part, like, a cameo in their music video if he got to drive the Dildorado. Because I still believe in my heart that it is around at you know, this point in time. For all we know, that's how they got him in the music video, because the Dildorado hasn't been seen since. So maybe Ballsack is the they one driving it. around oh. on the Willy on Wheels. Maybe they just erect it, you know, vertically every night, and that's one of the backing set pieces that Guar uses on tour, because they're very, like, Rob Zombie-esque in the theatricality. They deck the stage out. Like, Pink Floyd's got nothing on Guar. Mm-hmm. 
So because the original music video was such a low budget, you know, affair that was really just thrown together quickly before the music or the song rather really took off, uh, Mojo wanted a second music video. And so for that, for the second music video for the song, it, that one, they brought in Gregory Dark to direct it, who has directed videos for Ice Cube, Exhibit, Britney Spears, Vitamin C, and Linkin Park. And Cameron Diaz. <laughs> it was also edited by uh, Bob um, Murawski, who edited the original Spider-Man trilogy, Oz the Great and Powerful. I, I'm suspecting... Bob Murawski. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> yes. Editor with one eye. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he edited the original Spider-Man trilogy, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness very recently. And mm. uh, and was also awarded back in 2010 an Academy Award for Best Film Editing for his work on The Hurt Locker. And so this is the man, you know, an Academy Award winning editor who was brought in to edit their second music video, the, the retake of Zoot Suit Riot. So some kind of some big names between the director and the uh, editor. Indeed. And who says monsters don't have a cultural touchstone for us? The video earned a nomination for Best New Artist in a video uh, at the 1998 MTV Music Video Awards. Now, what's interesting here is the second video contains various flashes of occult imagery, such as a bartender serving drinks with a dead goat lying on her bar, flashes of a creepy clown face, a vampire woman licking blood off her hands, a monument made of skulls, and the various pe- and various people force feeding a mannequin head. <laughs> I don't recall the skulls. <laughs> <laughs> what? I yeah, do I, recall the goat. I, I, if I, it's been years since I've seen that video, but I feel like I recall some aspect of this. Yeah, it's very interesting considering it is a you know very. It's a, fun, swing song. it's a very fun swing song. <laughs> People are dancing around, and yet you've got you know a dead goat lying on a bar where uh-huh. the bartender's serving drinks with it. You've got creepy clown face faces, vampire women licking blood off her hands. Still hot. It, oh, I for mean, sure. they are subversive as just by the nature of the material. We've talked about that as a as a contrast, so it doesn't shock me that that's something they would do for the video. I still want to ask, just because Shane was a little bit on there, uh, I want to make it a formal bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on the Mountain of Skulls. Nothing in the list was a lie. Okay. Okay. Yeah, all true, including, very strangely, it's a a very weird imagery, but just watching people, like various people, force feed a mannequin head. Weird. And I'm not entirely certain what the imagery is supposed to convey, what meaning it's it's tied to. I have no idea. It's hyper capitalist consumption in in our modern <laughs> day that the working man cannot afford to do. Indeed, just like George Romero taught us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Now I have to ask if you recall: is the mannequin head just like a normal head, or is there actually like a working mouth? Like, is it open, or are they just smearing food? No, on it's, its just face? a. I believe it's just a mannequin head of memory. So, so they're just like smearing it. it on its face. Yeah, I mean, okay. just little cuts to it of you know forcing it in there. It's just such a strange uh, video with all that various occult imagery. I mean, especially, like I said, the dead goat. Like, I would love to have been a fly on the wall 
just hearing how that was first proposed, like, okay, so you've got this great swing song. Fantastic. All right. We're going to have people dancing. It's going to be like, you know, early 20 somethings doing flips and kicks and all this. And, uh, does anybody know where to get a dead goat? You know, we got to leave with a, give them something to talk about. <clears throat> Which still works even to this day. Yeah, Cause we're still we talking about that dead goat. Yeah. Now I have to, I, I don't know. Do you know if it was a real goat? Like, did they have to have like a disclaimer at the end that like, you know, no animals, animals were weren't harmed. harmed. Well, yeah. there's no disclaimer. I Uh-oh. assume it's not a real dead goat. Uh-oh. But I have no idea. Mm. And for all it's I know. It's a real know, big fish. Yeah, for all I know, it wasn't even a mannequin head. It was a dead head. They're <laughs> just shoving food in. Jerry Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> so How dare you. Perhaps not surprisingly, considering the fellow went on to direct, or sorry, to edit the Spider-Man trilogy, but also of interest, the video stars a young Kirsten Dunst as one of the swing dancers in the music video. What? Nil-boi. No. Really? No. Bullshit. No. It's correct. That's bullshit. <laughs> I was like, she, <laughs> she had been like a child actress, so I'm not sure that you would have gotten her in on that unless you were like fucking Howie Day. Well, she would have been, you know, she would have been a teenager because in the interview yeah, with the vampire she was, was like, I was like interviewing the vampire. She was like 10. Yeah. Yeah. I she's, was, she's my age. So yeah, it, she was, she was not very old. Yeah. I was hoping that would, that would just kind of sneak itself in there, you know, given all the other. I was going to say, methinks me you doth protest too much with all of the other stuff in front of that, and then just whap that dangle on the end. I'm like, I can see a dead goat. I can see people force-feeding a mannequin. But an early Kirsten Dunst? <laughs> if you told me Kirsten Dunst was the dead goat, I may have gone with it. She dressed up in the skin of a dead goat and laid on the bar. Indeed, yes. So... <laughs> So following Zoot Suit Riot, the daddies quickly followed this up with the release of Hey Pachuco, another swing song influenced uh, by Hispanic culture in the 1930s and associated with Zoot Suit fashion. Once Zoot Suit Riot and Hey Pachuco had begun rising up the charts in early 1998, Mojo insisted that the daddies immediately began touring behind it, forcing the band to abandon their follow-up studio album, which they had already started recording. Mojo also convinced Steve Perry to allow fellow label mates, Rattle Them Bones, to use one of the Cherry Pop and Daddy's abandoned names. And thus, Rattle Them Bones became the Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. Bless them. Yeah. Who then later went on to uh, do a Super Bowl halftime show, just since we recently had one of those. And it was delightful. I will I take your word for it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. You shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) So spending the majority of 1998 and 1999 on the road, the band were now playing close to 300 shows a year, carrying out both headlining and supporting tours of the United States uh, while traveling internationally as one of the headliners on the 1998 Warped Tour alongside Rancid and NoFX and Bad Religion. So, yeah, one of the headliners of the 98 Warp Tour. And I'm sure that Steve was happy as a pig in shit. I do not doubt it, yeah. He just shit. It's like, it was like he, if he got three, it's the right. first three albums, he just shit. Yep. <laughs> just throck that butt plug right out of him, and no effects is right there Pachoo! next to you. Took out an eye. Pachuco. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Pachinko. 
Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> the price is wrong, Bob. <laughs> okay, so following the 98 Warp Tour and playing for, you know, with Rancid and NoFX and Bad Religion, a little uh, something that Shane might be interested in is, uh, you know, following that Warp Tour there, the Daddies then opened for Metallica during the West Coast stage of their Reload Tour. During- I'm just going to patently disagree with that. <laughs> Yes, that's also bullshit. Fucking Metallica fans have been known to set the seats on fire. You fuck around with shit like that. Well, they did just play with no effects and bad religion. So, I mean, and and this was Metallica in the reload stage of their career. Ska is at least a kissing cousin to punk. It has nothing to do with thrash metal. And particularly, I don't care if it's the short haired Metallica. There were still a lot of angry dude bros hanging out in those shows. Yeah, I thought maybe that one sneak on by, but uh, I also well, figured. <laughs> I appreciate the tip. <laughs> yeah, just just the tip, and it didn't get too far in, and already splooged. Uh, my cherry's been long gone, friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not a conquest. Well, well done, sir. Well done. You're you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Taking several swings, and and you've already like uh, hit a few homers here. So yeah. No. <laughs> Ow. Ow. so during this time the band also made high profile appearances on major television shows including the tonight show with jay leno the late show with david letterman the view dick clark's new year's rock and eve each time performing their hit zoot suit riot the jazz critic scott yanow in his 2000 books swing labeled the daddies as the perfect quote-unquote whipping boy for the retro swing movement noting quote the daddies sound as if they are a punk rock band who has chosen to masquerade as swing the rhythm section has difficulty swinging the vocals are often profane the music although excitable in spots usually comes dangerously close to camp ah critics (laughs) yeah ouch what's what's very funny about that is like you know they sound like as if they are a punk rock band who's chosen to masquerade as swing it's like well for oh, starters, they've always done swing in all of their stuff, but uh, but yeah, they are a punk rock band. Like, <laughs> like you think <laughs> that you, does some swing? Yeah, it's like you think that's a criticism, but uh, thank you, actually. <laughs> yeah, nailed me perfectly. The thing about criticism is that it does require a a yard marker. Like you need something to measure it against, and ultimately, that always ends up being the purest form of the expression. <laughs> here to date so if you try to do anything revolutionary or if you try to tilt something on its head slightly the purists are always going to get their panties in a wad Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't that's i probably shouldn't use that phrase anymore now that i think about it so i'm listening to that it's like that's (laughs) very reductive of me uh it always sets their thatch on fire but uh (laughs) it's i yeah you hear this often with people it's like oh well it's it's not to the manner born it doesn't sound exactly as it should for the genre it's like yeah after some point like that field has been tilled you got to do something different so yes if we're going to harken back to it at least we're bringing a different complexion to that style of music and not just okay well here we're going to do another you know gospel hymn and it's a a traditional folk song and let's just play it for the 1800th time in the exact same way it's been performed air single time like who gives a fuck you're doing something different yeah, and although this book is from 2000, in which the swing movement was already, you know, kind of on its way out, uh, at the t- if I was to read that, you know, review at the time, 
I can't think of anything that would make me want to check out the band more. Like, wait, a punk rock band masquerading as swing? Like, okay, that's yeah. that's interesting. You've kind of, you know, piqued my interest here. Because instead of just like, oh, a very retro, like, 1930s band, that's what they do and stuff. It's like, As soon as you throw out that descriptor, I'm like, all right, I, I got to at least check them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like you wouldn't be buying that book unless you're like a super swing purist in that in that regard anyway. Like you're like, oh, I respect this guy's opinion because <clears throat> all he cares <throat> about is swing, 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 swing. So like if someone oh, well, is attempting. <laughs> yeah, that's so. true. Since the book itself is called Swing. That's yeah, I think you very right there. <laughs> so well, since you made an All-American Rejects reference there that you didn't acknowledge, I'm very upset, but <laughs> Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I know those boys. It's important for me to lay the ground down. Uh, I was uh, their handler for an evening in Lake Havasu City. Oh. Yes, they were going through on tour, and it was, uh, again, talking about like mashups of MTV. So this was 2003. Uh, they just started getting some notoriety, so I had nothing to do with this. I was just who I got assigned to them. But they were on tour for the Fashionably Loud tour, I think, is what was going through Havasu at the time. The other headliner was Seether, who I was very into and exceedingly excited, and I was <laughs> desperately hoping i would get seether and i got stuck with these kids who couldn't drink they were all under 21 all of them were <laughs> you know these well put together looking young lads with long hair and i'm the angry bald guy so i was so pissed <laughs> at having to chaperone these kids around all day and they gave me like the sweetest guys in the world were super nice Gave me copies of their CDs, gave me a T-shirt, gave me a bunch of stuff, and I'm an idiot because I left. I was so exhausted, I dropped them off at like four in the morning. And when I finished, I left everything in the van. I just left and completely spaced it. So I had all of these really wonderful little keepsakes. Aww. And Melissa loves the All American Rejects, so it's really sad. But uh, yeah, I got through that. And then a week and a half later, I was in uh, a room with a couple of the other security guards uh, with some other individuals, and we were all watching. TV and they're fashionably loud. Here's the all American rejects playing music with scantily clad women, just walking by them doing, you know, a fashion show. And I was like, Holy shit. <laughs> Those guys are, they're actually pretty big. So yeah, it, it's one of the weirder nights of my life, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. Very wow. interesting individuals, but it's 20 years ago now. So what the hell does it matter? You were bald back then 20 years ago. I started shaving my head real quick. Like oh, okay. once I so optional bald, <laughs> Uh, well, so my family's been rocking the horseshoe haircut for time immemorial. Like my, my brother had pretty much receded back by the time he was like 18 or 19. And so I always knew it was in the offing. Now, apparently the lighter haired members of my family keep their hair a little longer. So I still probably have got a decent collection of it. But once it started thinning out, I was like, there's no fashionable style I can do with yeah. this. Like, it's just going to look <laughs> ridiculous. I started looking like the lead singer of Smash Mouth after a while, or just like, oh, fuck. So I kind of, I, my mom refused to let me shave my head. Is one of those, like, I, everyone else in the family's bald. I refuse to let you go. So she's like, no, you keep your hair as long as you can. <laughs> so finally, I was like, okay, well, can you just let me start over and like just cut it really short so I can at least just kind of get, through with dealing with a bunch of hair on my head and she's like yeah sure i can do that so she buzzed it pretty short and she's like you know i thought sure sure this will this will work and she left the house immediately after she went out the door i shaved my head i was like <laughs> fuck it i'm not doing this nonsense and from that point forward i have essentially had it 
you know, gone, but she was very, very incensed at seeing that I had removed what lovely locks I still had. So technically, yes, I brought it on myself, but it was, it was inevitable. Yeah, the look suits you. You look good. Oh, thank you. I have a lovely shaped head. <laughs> All right. So circling back to another lovely shaped head. Uh, that uh, The Dildorado? That's right. That, the, those who ride the Dildorado. So, although the daddies were experiencing commercial success under the guise of Swing Revivalist, having been declared the leaders of the movement by Rolling Stone, the band openly contested being labeled as a retro act at the exclusion of their dominant ska and punk influences and modernist lyricism. While still saw this coming, yeah, <laughs> while still vocal supporters of both the Swing Revival and its bands. The daddies adamantly tried to disassociate themselves from the swing scene, and in particular, its nostalgia-based mentality. Perry explained to Spin in July 1998, quote, It's not our mission to be a swing band. I'm not a guy from the 40s. That's why we play ska and use heavy guitars. He also noted elsewhere, quote, I can't fully take us out of the retro classification, but we harp on the fact that we are contemporary music. Steve Perry, commenting on the retro aesthetics uh, aesthetics of the Swing Revival in 2016, said, quote, I figured the swing scene would be a hybrid of The Clash and The Cotton Club. But then when other bands did swing music, they did a kind of 50s version. They kept it very clean and vanilla. Most of it has to do with nice people having manners and dressing up. That's not what we wanted. We wanted to be the Rolling Stones of Swings. Not the Beatles of Swing. <laughs> I wanted to dress in a diaper, damn it. I'm not going to dress nice. <laughs> right, the accidental additional plural there is killing me because it makes me think he has a Russian accent. <laughs> we wanted to be the Rolling Stones of Swings, not the Beatles of the Swings. We make the Swings the grungy, gritty stuff, you know? <laughs> he says while well, wearing a diaper. Exactly, yes. yes. And well, in I was going to say, yeah, incontinence is a terrible beast to try to tame. So during the height of the daddy's popularity, Perry found the band's mainstream notoriety was causing an alienating effect on his personal life, claiming mm. it to have negatively changed his relationship with friends and even subjected him to occasional heckling from strangers who recognized him in public. He would later recall, quote, it's a total cliche, but fame doesn't make you happy. There's a lot missing. Success has given people the right to yell at me on the street, but I don't really feel like it's giving me any dignity. Already feeling burnt out from the daddy's constant touring, Perry's frustrations were only exacerbated by the media's persistent dismissal of the daddy's as a retro novelty act, though he later claimed to have felt pressured to maintain the image due to audience and media expectations. I feel like the discussion in the last episode when we were talking, it was the uh, Motor City Muscle Car. Is that the album? Rapid City. Yeah. Rapid City. Okay. Uh, where they're talking about wanting to be, you know, shifting genres song by song, trying to have different shades and complexion, not be pigeonholed. This is like the ultimate dismissal for them of just like this, you're a one note kind of hack. So I could immediately tell like, yeah, that's he's going to start getting his hackles up very quickly at being dismissed. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Especially since... You know, like you were referencing with that album, that was all before they like had any sort of success, right? So exactly. they were already like very adamant at, at that just as an artist who's, you know, not even like who's maybe popular as a local artist, but that's it. Mm -hmm. So especially like, yeah, once you kind of hit big, it's that, 
you know, double-edged sort of like, well, it's, it's nice to have this popularity, but also like this goes against everything that I stand for. In the words of Maynard James Keenan, I sold my soul to make a record and then you bought one. Yes. Yeah. I, I like that quote. I haven't heard that one before. Oh, it's a, uh, it's a fantastic, uh, song. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the fuck the title is, but, uh, come back to me on that one. But, okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's really fantastic. I think it's jerk off. Uh, yes, it's a guy who comes up and tells them that they sold out. And yeah, the, the exact quote, I'm, I'm probably going to botch the lyrics slightly, but it's one of those, like, don't presume to tell me that, you know, we sold out. I sold out long before you ever even heard my name. I sold my soul to make a record dipshit. And then you bought one. So <laughs> I'm going to check that out. That's, it's uh, the exact, out. the lines that follow that are, um, I've got some advice for you, little buddy. Before you point your finger, you should know that I'm the man. And if I'm the man, then he's the man, and you're the man as well. So you can point that fucking finger up your ass. <laughs> yeah, badass. It's, as right you can tell, there. it's it's made an impact because it's still in my brain after you know 20 years of hearing it. But it's very impactful song of saying you know for the fair weather fans are like yeah you you guys are sold out and you're big time now. It's like oh, friend, <laughs> you never would have met me otherwise. So going back here, so when the band began to face criticism and accusations of selling out, just as we're talking about, from their Northwest fan base, the Daddies fought to further push themselves away from their mainstream typecasting. In a 1999 interview responding to their place in the swing scene, Perry retorted, we'll unapologetically play ska right in front of the people who want to hear swing. Ooh. Yeah. Big words. <laughs> zoot Zoot Riot. <laughs> <laughs> they have fighting words. Yeah. We'll play ska wherever we damn That's well right. please in front yeah. of swing, in front of pop, pop, uh, punk rock fans, wherever. We'll do it. You can Don't put care. that hacky sack up your ass. That's right. You grandma and grandpas came here for a swing dancing lesson. Prepare for a song about boobs. Rips off his pants wearing a full diaper. Speaking Let's of which, do did, it. did they play that song at your uh, at the dancing lesson? Sadly, no. But they did a oh. they did play it uh, like a year or two ago. I saw a streaming of it, so it was pretty okay. Pretty cool to see it kind of circling back into their repertoire. So, Zoot Suit Riot had sold over two million copies in the United States by the time the Swing Revival's mainstream popularity had declined, finally slipping off the charts in January two thousand. With their touring schedule finally coming to a close. Daddy's commenced work on their next studio album. Well, I think that it, it timed out just precisely. Was that where you were uh, wrapping up, or, or is this? Uh, no, it was I going to. Figure. Yeah, it was going to continue on because it was. You know, this is. Uh, we're now going into their mainstream decline, but I, I, I kind of warded it in that way because I thought that would sound like a nice concluding way for you to hop it in. is it is and it, it you it, we timed out precisely where i intended we were going to so uh what a wonderful way to leave right as they are at their apex and uh we are beginning to evanesce if you will uh, allow me to use that w term in its appropriate uh nomenclature Ooh. but uh, yes what a wonderful one so that sounds fantastic. Uh, since we did not get through the entirety of your selection here, I don't imagine we can do the full unveiling of lies here. Well, but, actually, uh, I could. Uh, I could let you know because out of so we could say that there were four lies because there's okay, only one. Remaining. We, all right, I know that we did get three. <clears throat> uh, yeah. So let's see. So we had the video also stars young Kirsten Dunst. Well, you caught mm. that. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> 
The next lie uh, immediately followed that, and I thought that I might have actually spoiled it myself with my offhanded comment uh, discussion about Royal Crown Review earlier, because uh, because I then said the daddies quickly followed this up with the release of Hey Pachuco, another uh-huh. song influenced by Hispanic culture in the 1930s. I- I was going to throw something out there, and then I was like, uh, they might have just done another version of it, but yeah, okay. But yeah, no, that's Royal Crown Review, and I, forgetting, because I, I wrote the script quite a while back, forgetting that that was coming up, I threw it out there and answered it itself, and I, so as I read yep. that out, I was like, I already said the answer. <laughs> but, yep, okay, but yep. Those are still fun. I love doing that. Like It's like, well, you know, I as the reader... For your script, you're like, oh man, they're gonna they're gonna get it because I'm giving the answer in the next paragraph. Most of the time, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, so that lie uh, went on past, uh, yes. and then we have uh, the next lie here. Mojo also convinced Steve Perry to allow fellow label mates rattle them bones to use one of the Cherry Pop and Daddy's abandoned names, thus becoming the Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. That is, in fact, a lie. The Big Bad Voodoo Daddies already existed. I just thought perhaps that would squeak on by, considering the Cherry Pop and Daddies had a rather large collection of discarded names that all involved mm-hmm. Daddy or Daddies. And so I thought mm-hmm. Big Bad Voodoo Daddies would probably just work their way there. And most certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then so that, that lie was missed there. The next lie you did catch, this was them opening for Metallica. And <laughs> that would be where we leave off on this one. Okay. So it was two out of the four. How wonderful. Well, uh, I think that gives us a, a a lot of excitement moving into the next installment. And we didn't real little did we know, we had the war and peace of the Cherry Pop and Daddies. It was uh, prepped for us here. But uh, we thank you all for being here. It's a delightful time as always. And largely it's attributed to the fact that, uh, you know, Michael's got a very well-written and, and thought-out presentation and I just keep making off-color comments. And uh, therein lies the rub. And if you want to have a rub, you can join us every single lovely Monday as new episodes are winging your way. So like, subscribe, rate, and review. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, this new stuff every single lovely Monday morning on your preferred podcast provider app. So subscribe where you can. We would appreciate it. If you want to find us on our debunked social networks, you can. There's a link tree in the show notes below that'll take you to all all of the uh, material that I posted like eight months ago, and it's it, it, a lot of fun. I'm sure that you can, you know, it'll get you inspired for the back catalog. You can go discover the the joys of the lost continent of Lemuria, as we alluded to earlier in the evening. That was a very interesting episode and a lot of fun, and I uh, you should go check it out again. It, it's worth a, a re-listen, if I can give Michael a little credit. Yes, and of course, on the tubes of you, we are still, uh, you know, just browbeating you. And there will be some exclusive content at some point here, because we are trying to do enough, you know, pre-roll material here for Michael to eventually unleash on you, you know, in 2025, when you least expect it. (laughs) It's the Spanish Inquisition all over again. Uh, But uh, I think that is going to officially wrap this rascal up for this evening's exploits. And so for the Disinformed Podcast this week week i'm shane and i'm michael and i'm michael and zippity zoop we're out of here